Welcome to the next in a series of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast, brought to you by SAM Rams. Welcome to another episode of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast. This is in collaboration between SAEM Rams and Faculty Development Committee. My name is Hamza Ijaz. I am a second-year resident at the University of Cincinnati. And my name is Doug Slade. I'm a first-year attending at Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania. And today, our guest is going to be Dr. Ali Raja. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So Dr. Raja is the Executive Vice Chair at the Department of Emergency Medicine at Massachusetts General. He is also an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Raja has received his MPH from Harvard, holds MD and MBA degrees from Duke, training in emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati. He has completed a research fellowship at Brigham and Women's Shield uh, Hospital. He is board certified in both emergency medicine and clinical informatics and is appointed to the Department of Emergency Medicine as well as radiology at Harvard Medical School. So as a practicing physician, uh, emergency physician, author over 200 publications, his federally funded research focuses on improving the appropriateness of resource utilization in emergency medicine. So after that uh, impressive introduction, Dr. Raja, let's start at the very beginning. I'm sure it's been a while since you've been asked this question, but why emergency medicine? How did you come across emergency medicine? Thanks. First of all, thanks for the great introduction. I really appreciate it. And I have to tell you, you know, this is something that has changed over time. I think we all we all had med school essays that we wrote. And I think mine had something to do with the fact that I was an EMT in college and I loved being an EMT, but I wanted to do so much more. And every time I dropped a patient off at the hospital, I would want to stick around and, and watch what they were doing to understand more about the emergency medicine aspect of their care. And I think that that worked. That got me into med school. It got me into residency. It seemed to work for a while. But actually over, let's see, I graduated from med school 16 years ago now. So over that time period, it's really changed. And I think I'm fortunate to be part of a profession that I rediscover reasons for wanting to be part of every shift. And lately, over the past few shifts, it's been that during this pandemic that we're all still in the middle of, we are the source of care that hasn't gone away, that hasn't changed, that despite clinics fluctuating between open and closed, despite uh, being able to get procedures done or not being able to get procedures done or having access to telehealth or not having access to telehealth, at the end of the day, if you really needed care, you could still come to us and we were always safe and open and available. And that's my current reason for why I'm really excited about emergency medicine, but it really does change every year as I discover yet another new thing about our specialty that excites me. No, yeah, it's, it could not be you know, even more true, this, especially in this current pandemic, as you point out, as you, I'm sure you've heard of the documentary, the 24-7, 365, could not be more evident in this current time. We are always here, and that has always been something that attracted me to the specialty, and I sure attracted you know you as well as Doug and countless other residents and physicians into emergency medicine. But the fact that we are able to help everyone or anyone that comes through those doors at any given time of the day or the week or whatever the circumstance is, we're always there for them. And I could not agree more. That is a very uh, inspirational aspect of the specialty. So how do you compare, uh, not just emergency medicine in general, but how do you compare the residency experience like in the academic setting that you're currently in to what you did experience 16 years, you know, 16 years ago when you started out? 
It's a good question because it does change over time. I think the biggest thing that I have seen over the past decade and a half or so that I've been doing this and knowing that there are plenty of listeners to this podcast that have been doing this much longer and and some that have been doing it shorter is that we've become much more used to and really have learned to live with the fact that our specialties expertise constantly changes. We used to you know, when I first started residency back in 2004, ultrasound was new-ish. It had been around for a few years, uh, but we were just really starting to make it part of our residency and training within it. And there was some faculty who maybe weren't quite ready. And I think that was true. I know that was true all around the country. But over the past decade and a half, over the past couple of decades, we've gotten used to doing new things as part of the definition of our specialty whether that is learning how to do ultrasounds from initially just doing fasts to e-fasts to rush exams to you know, ocular ultrasound, right? We're learning how to use it in new ways. And now when our ultrasound faculty teach us something new, it's not something that we're reticent to learn. It's just the constant evolution of our specialty. Uh, we're also willing to do new things. So we're not just the specialty that treats MIs and treats strokes. Maybe we're also the specialty that treats opiate use disorder. Maybe we're the specialty that when patients are at the end of their rope and they come in in the middle of the night, we don't just give them a sheet full of phone numbers and discharge them and have them go out and try to find help on their own. Maybe we're the specialty that starts them on buprenorphine and helps them get into a clinic the next day. And that wasn't the definition of the specialty that I went into 16 years ago, but Thinking about our specialty as one who's defined by its constant evolution is what I think of emergency medicine as now. And I think that's really been something that's come into full force over the past 15 or 20 years. And, you know, so we're talking about how emergency medicine has been evolving some. I mean, has there been anything that you found in your practice now that's becoming not easier or kind of uh, using new uh, using new technology, but is there anything that's become, you know, seems like even a bigger challenge than before. I think the biggest challenge for us has been and and will always be on the operational side because we have control over a broad swath of the patients that we see. At our place, about 70% of the patients end up going home. And for those patients, we generally have good control over their care. Sure, we might get a slow consultant or two every now and then. We might have problems making some follow-up appointments for some of them, but at least at a big academic place, you're going to have control over those patients. But for the other 30% of the patients who are coming into the hospital, whether it's inpatient units or observation units, those patients we often don't have as much control of, and yet they occupy real estate in our emergency department. So the operational challenges, whether it's borders in the emergency department or getting bed assignments or getting coverage for uh, for patients who are admitted and are should be cared for by inpatient teams, all of those operational challenges impact the care of everybody else in the ED and sometimes have a disproportionate effect on the, the strain that our staff feels. And we end up caring for ICU patients for many, many hours and at some institutions around the country, many, many days. And that's something that we can do. But quite honestly, it's not something that we are the best at, and it's not something that we should have to do. And so our challenge as leaders is to keep advocating for and working with leaders in the hospitals and health systems in which we work to try to make sure that patients get the best care in the best location that's, that they should be in. 
And oftentimes that means getting them out of the emergency department to wherever they need to be upstairs in the hospital. So you mentioned a little bit about the operations and the challenges kind of alluding to that. So this is a perfect segue into the next topic that I wanted to discuss with you, but it's, you have an MD, you have an MPH, you have an MBA, and I feel like I see this even more prevalent in emergency medicine, specifically in academics where physicians are not only getting medical degrees, but on top of that, looking for other advanced degrees, whether it's in an MPH or an MBA as yourself, or, you know, looking into master's in education and various other other advanced degrees. And I hear on Twitter as well that you're now also pursuing a PhD. I guess there's just no degree that is, uh, you know, enough for Dr. Raja, but specifically for MBAs, what are some of the ways you think that in academic settings, it can be helpful for emergency positions? I think there's no absolute requirement and there should never be an absolute requirement for any additional training to do what we do. A residency trained emergency physician is an expert at the emergent management of patients in a clinical emergency department. That's all you need. Do your residency and you will come out exceptionally well-trained and able to care for patients in the emergency department. But if you're trying to diversify your career, whether you want to become a master educator, whether you really want to get into the admin side of things and understand how operations and and leadership and management of of people and, and other personnel work, but also, or if you want to do more in terms of research, in terms of statistics, there's a lot of additional training that you can get. I don't advocate degrees for everybody either. I think that there's a lot that you can learn with free open access emergency medicine uh, that's out there. You can also learn, there's a lot of free courses now with the edX consortium and other schools offering free courses. You don't have to get degrees, but for me, knowing the way that I learn. I learn best with a curriculum that would really cover the entire gamut of education for a specific topic. And uh, if if it was left to my own devices, I tend to go down rabbit holes. And without being forced to move forward, I might get really stuck and super interested in one particular topic and then not really learn the rest of the breadth of the education for, say, an MBA. And so it worked best for me to follow specific curricula for an MBA and to Uh, then go back and get an MPH focused on epidemiology to learn how to perform studies and design studies, because that was a big part of what I do as an academic emergency physician. So I think that if you have a specific goal in mind, I want to take on more leadership roles. And in order to do that, I need to learn about operations and administration. Then sure, get an MBA or an MHA or do an admin fellowship. But definitely don't get a degree just to get a degree. It's time and money and effort that's taken away from your family, your other hobbies and interests, your clinical practice. If you've got a real mission in mind that needs the additional training or a degree, then by all means, go do it. And I'm fully supportive. But there's really no reason for everybody to get degrees unless that's part of their specific path to whatever it is they want to do. Fair enough. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Uh, I wanted to follow that up with Something that you're referring to, you know, not necessarily necessitating a degree, but I think, you know, Doug was going to touch on this a little bit later, but I'm happy to, uh, since we've already started talking about this now, but what advice would you have for residents who are interested in, you know, administration, operations, and research as early residents and senior residents or when they go out looking for that fellowship um, opportunity or looking for their first job as an attending, what advice do you have for residents in terms of, helping them be successful for that next step? 
The biggest advice I have for residents looking to take on admin or leadership roles is it's the same thing that I tell the third year med students who are rotating us with us in the emergency department. It's that it's much better to take on one or two patients and dive in deep and know everything about them and be ahead of the game in terms of when their labs come back and following up on their imaging and updating them and the nurses than it is to take on 10 patients and drop the ball on each of them. You want to be known as the physician who takes on a task or two and does them exceptionally well. And then over the years, you'll learn to take on more tasks. You don't want to be the person who says they're going to do lots of projects and then is always late or does a not so great job of those projects because then you won't be the person that they come to again when they need something. Take on a task, take on a project, especially if you're thinking about doing this early in your residency. If you're an intern or a second year, just take on one little thing about which you are passionate. You evaluate something. If there's a patient care issue that frustrates you, work on making that problem better. Don't take on a bunch of tasks. And then over the next year or two, as you make that problem better, you'll get known as the person who can solve a problem. What I've seen happen, unfortunately, is that I've seen some really gung-ho, passionate people just take on too much. And then not only do they get known as the person who can't close and can't make things better and can't finish a project, but they themselves get unhappy and burnt out because they don't see the successes that they were hoping to see when they took on five or six things at once. That's honestly, I could not agree more. I had a very, very similar personal experience during intern year and then early PGY2 year where I came into residency, you know, just super excited about, you know, wanting to say yes to everything. Uh, but it's a hard, you know, when you're so excited and you're an early learner, you just want to get involved with a lot of different opportunities. But, you know, there's a fine balance of, you know, obviously becoming an excellent clinician first and then also getting involved with these projects. And I think that's a common pitfall that, you know, a lot of residents and learners and fellows and I guess even early attendings can, you know, have that, you know, that uh, roadblock where they, want to say yes to a lot of different projects or opportunities, but, you know, it actually ends up being detrimental for their long-term aspirations. So it's really, I really appreciate, you know, focusing on that. Definitely. We'll turn that around to you a little bit. Is there a specific, I mean, is there one specific focus or two specific focuses that you're really driving at right now? It's a great question. I think you, you get to be at a point in your career where you're not the, you're not necessarily the individual specific driver for a bunch of projects and you can help guide and mentor others. And that's when you can really capitalize on the ability to do multiple things at once. I think when you are the person who actually has to do specific tasks, there's a limit to what you can actually do. But when you get to the point where you can help lead teams and, and mentor true experts who are leading the leading the charge, and then sort of you get to be in the background guiding and mentoring and helping them along, that's why I can do all the different things I can do. But if I didn't have a great team full of people smarter than me doing it, uh, I wouldn't be able to do that. So specific areas that I focus on, are, I just focus on the operations of the ED, which is a broad area. But I have I have a specific person who's our expert on everything COVID, or a specific person who's our expert on everything EPIC-related, which is the EMR that we use, specific people who I can reach out to and task with specific tasks that can then push all that forward. So right now, my main areas are are dealing with COVID and the, the crowding that we're starting to see again, even though we have less room in our waiting areas because of the fact that we need to keep six feet between everybody, that kind of stuff. But also 
just making sure that we don't burn out our teams, our physicians and our nurses and our APPs and our residents, every, everybody got really beat up over the past six, six months with COVID. It was a rough April and May for us here in Boston. And, and it's been rough for everybody all over the country and all over the world as well. But trying to make sure that the changes that we implement don't burn them out, despite the rapidity with which they get thrown them, is, is a big part of what I do as well. So touching more onto, you know, your, this pandemic that, you know, in Boston being hit pretty hard early on, what was that experience like for yourself, your colleagues, and, you know, the other physicians I'm sure you've talked to in the area as well? I think the, the hardest part about it, and now I'm speaking to a bunch of listeners, all of whom went through it, right? So this everybody's going to have their own answer. But the hardest part about it for us was the, the fact that the first time, and there will be a second time, I'm sure, in the next few weeks or months. But the first time, we didn't know anything about this. And so we had not only the concern for our patients that we always had, but we also had the concerns for ourselves and our families. And that made this pandemic so much different than anything that I had ever faced before in the last couple of decades of, of being a physician. Um, the acuity was tough, right? Like I had one shift where we intubated 12 people in a, in a 10-hour shift. And that was rough, but I had, you know, two senior residents and a couple of junior residents, and then another attending came on to help. And that was completely manageable in a big, busy emergency department. But for the first time in my life, I had to go home and shower and burn. I didn't burn my clothes, but shower and, uh, and get everything cleaned up before I could hug my wife and see my kids. And that sort of personal impact is what made this so very different for me. And I'm sure every single other physician who's listening to this podcast. And then the rapidity of change. So one week we would have testing criteria X. The next week it would be different. The next week it would be different still. And so as an operational leader, getting a really diverse team to follow along with the first criteria was doable. It was fine. We've got a great team and they're used to rapid cycle change and they can make adjustments. But the rapid cycle change with which they normally make adjustments is every month or two, uh, you know, a couple of times a year, not every single week, about the same thing over and over and over again. And so we had to develop a really good process where a bunch of us would actually go around and do rounds in the ED twice a day, updating everybody on what had changed from the morning to the afternoon. We would send out the usual emails. We would do calls every couple of weeks with our usual faculty calls. But we made sure that we were there in person talking to the entire clinical team that was working in real time, the physicians, the APPs, the nurses, making sure that we were all on the same page, given the fact that the criteria had changed from 8 o'clock that morning to 3 o'clock that afternoon. So that was the hardest part about this for us, is just keeping up with everything, both that it was impacting, impacting our personal lives, but also the rapid criteria for testing and treatment that would change sometimes in the same day. Was there anything that you found to be particularly effective in instituting kind of these constant changes over weeks to months, emails or anything else? Uh, you know, the emails, we all know this, right? The emails mostly get ignored. It, we definitely, there were some emails that were, that were good. My chair, David Brown, sent out an email every week or so. It was this inspirational, passionate message about us coming together as a team and, and treating patients. And that was great. It was like, a, like an uplifting novel to read those every week or so. But while we would send out the various updated processes and um, operational changes by email as well, they would often fall through the cracks because the health system would be sending one email, 
the hospital would be sending another, we'd be sending another, the physician practice group would be sending another. And so it was just a lot of stuff for people to keep up with. So the best thing that we did was actually put boots on the ground, rounding, having operational leadership round twice a day, going around to every area of the emergency department and telling people what the new changes were. And just as importantly, answering their questions and and reflecting on their frustrations and making things better the next day based on what we learned from them the day before. Without that time and effort, I think we would have not been able to get things changing as quickly as they were and would have a lot more burnout than we actually ended up having. Did anything in in your education kind of prepare you for this at all? I mean, the the obvious answer is no, or I guess, how, how did anything in, you know, your your, your number of educational experiences help you deal with this, if that's that's a fair question? I think the biggest thing that I would, that I fell back on every now and then, and actually I did actually open up a couple of books, is uh, for about 10 years I was in the Air Force. And I think that military leadership was often uh, has often had to respond to crises with rapidly changing scenarios and rapidly changing requirements of the mission. And that's the only thing that was similar to to this. And there's plenty of books written by various military officers all around the world of how this has been done in their line of work. And so I was able to dig up a couple of old lectures from OCS, from Officer Candidate School. But more importantly, I actually went out of my way to find some textbooks uh, written by military leaders. And I wish I had actually pulled them up because I'd love to talk about them. But that's the kind of crisis management that we were in during the era of the first round of COVID. Business school, didn't. it's hard to build up a strategy for treating something when you don't actually know what danger the virus actually causes. It's hard to know whether or not you're putting your staff at risk with the current level of PPE or not. It turns out we actually had a good solid amount of PPE, but we didn't know if that was going to be enough. None of us did until months later. And it turns out that we were able to keep the vast majority of our staff healthy. But that could have been that have could have gone completely the other way if, if the virus's transmission characteristics were slightly different. And so it's hard to use the business strategic approach. Uh, military leadership is probably the best analogy for what we had to do over the past few months, what every emergency department leader and physician had to do over the past few months. Yeah, very telling that the military experience was kind of what helped translate best to this, um, this uh, situation that we've all been dealing with. Have your uh, day-to-day responsibilities as you know one of the leaders in the emergency department changed over now that the we've been we've been several months into this now with kind of the curve the curve flattening and going down and now starting to come back up. How have you seen kind of your your roles and responsibilities change through the course here? For a while there it was all COVID all the time. And now it's actually getting much more typical for me. You know, like yesterday or two days ago, I was giving lectures to the admin fellows about time management. And uh, that's something that I used to do much more frequently. Now I'm having regular and routine meetings with various departments in the hospital that are not all COVID related, but also focused on how we can get more patients to the hospital, how we can do fundraising, how we can come up with more streamlined processes for non-COVID related illnesses. So it's allowing me to get back to what I usually and normally did 
before the entire day was full of putting out COVID fires. And fortunately, what's nice is that we have our solid protocols now. So when we do see another surge and we start seeing more patients with potential COVID-19, we actually have pathways in place that should be pretty solid. And obviously they'll need to be adjusted again as things change, but we're not operating from a blank slate this time. And that's going to be that's going to allow for a much smoother surge whenever it happens again. So no one really predicted, or I guess maybe very few people predicted exactly what was going to happen with COVID. But now that it is here and, you know, who knows how long it's going to be around, but, you know, maybe for the long haul, how do you see emergency medicine moving forward in the next five to 10 years? You know, where do you see the next steps and the next uh, frontiers of success and pioneering leading us to? I think it's been said before that we are, as we mentioned, even during this podcast, right, we're always going to be open. But the question is, who's actually going to come to us? And I think what this has really highlighted is that there was a large proportion of our patients who actually didn't necessarily need emergency department care, but had been coming to us because they just didn't have anybody else to go to. Now, don't get me wrong. We've all talked about this over the past few months. There was a lot of patients who didn't need emergency department care who didn't come either. They were missed MIs and there were uh, missed strokes. There were missed epidural abscesses because patients didn't present until a week after they just couldn't feel their legs. But there was also a large proportion of patients who just couldn't get in to see their primary care doctors and now were able to do so via telehealth. There was parents who couldn't get a day off work to take their kid to the pediatrician. And so were forced to come in at 11 o'clock at night when the kid's asthma was acting up, who now, because they were working from home and were able to telemedicine into their kid's pediatrician, were able to keep their kid's asthma controlled because they were able to get everything sorted out. Telehealth has been a huge change. And as emergency physicians, we should be at the table when we're talking about that. We do telemedicine for a number of different, in a number of different ways. We do it direct to patient. Uh, we do it direct to our community hospitals when they need somebody to bounce an idea off of as to whether or not they should or they shouldn't send patients our way. But that's going to be a big part of what emergency medicine does in the future. But the other thing is that we do a lot of population health management. We work with our primary care clinics. We work with our outlying hospitals to help them avoid sending us patients who then we might actually just send right back to them. There's nothing more frustrating than being an emergency physician at a small community hospital, going through all the work of sending a patient to a big academic medical center, and then having nothing in your mind be done, and then they just end up coming right back home. So working with the entire population to make sure we get the right patients in the emergency department is going to be key. And then making sure that our, our two dispositions aren't home or admission. There are so many things in between, whether it is having a mobile paramedic go out and take care of that patient at their house, whether it's having a nurse or even a home hospital team with a physician at the head going out and taking care of the patients at home, whether it's getting them directly into a skilled nursing facility instead of a three-day stay in the hospital that's just useless and expensive for everybody. There's a lot more that we're going to be doing in terms of population health management so that in the emergency department, we're actually taking care of the patients who need to come see us. We're not just the, the stopgap where they come when there's nothing else that they can do. We are going to help build out the solutions for those patients so they have something that they can do instead of coming to us with no hope whatsoever. It's really important. Yeah, I've seen a certain growing number of social emergency medicine fellowships starting to come around now. 
So it's like a novel idea, but it's exactly as you mentioned about focusing on population health management. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next coming years and seeing how emergency medicine plays a role in that sector. I mean, any thoughts on how academic emergency training is going to move in the future, uh, whether it's, you know, res- you know, certainly residency, but uh, even some of the societies, ASAP, uh, SAM, uh, where do you, I mean, obviously conferences have been canceled and, or at least moved virtually. I mean, is that something that's here to stay too? Or where, where do you think things are headed from uh, an overall kind of training and emergency medicine community experience here in the same time frame? Gosh, I really hope that the, the video conferencing is, is here to stay. But it can't be a substitute for everything. As we've learned, if you've, if you've tried going to an, a conference over the past six months or so, you know, you can watch the presentations and you can even see the posters. But it's hard to get together with other physicians from the other side of the country and just catch up and feel the camaraderie when you're doing it all via Zoom or whatever your online platform is. But I hope that they are, I hope that some aspect of this is here to stay because quite honestly, there's a lot of travel in terms of time and expense that we put into these conferences that just seems like we could do more effectively via video conference. Going out to a five or six day conference, taking that much time away from your family, finding coverage for your shifts for all those days, well, what if we actually just went out for a two or three day conference and did a bunch of stuff virtually before or after? And those two or three days were about building connections that would last us for the next six months or 12 months instead of spending uh, a day speaking. You know, I've been to plenty of conferences where you get up and you present and there's 10 people in the audience. Well, for that, I could have just stayed home and presented via video conference and been able to manage everything else in my life. Finding the the time for my wife to take off work or, you know, for the kids to be picked up by somebody else at school because I was away for, for a conference like that just doesn't seem worth it anymore when there's a really good option. So I think we need to focus more on the real benefit of conferences, which is the interconnectivity and the just the, the ability to bounce ideas off of and share experiences with other physicians in our same shoes from around the country and around the world. And then a lot of the presentations we're getting very good at doing virtually, and we can probably take them and keep them online. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see how the emergency medicine community continues to stay together here over the next, uh, certainly the next couple of months and years to come. Uh, you said your department chair had kind of left you with some, you know, weekly uh, inspirational quotes kind of throughout the early phase of the pandemic. We're winding down here. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? Either a favorite, most inspiring quote, anything from the military textbooks that uh, jumps out at you? There's so many great quotes. I think, so one's a short Wayne Gretzky quote, and that's that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I think that that, I, we've probably all heard that one before, but that one Sometimes when I'm thinking of of applying for something just weird or reaching out to somebody who probably will ignore me, I figure there's nothing to lose because if I don't do it, the answer is automatically no. So that Wayne Gretzky quote, I think, just carries me a lot. And the the other quote is is more about managing time and priorities. And the only reason I bring this one up is because I just gave this talk to the fellows a couple of days ago about time management. And that's the That's the fact that in academic medicine, we're always juggling a bunch of stuff. We're juggling research projects and we're juggling administrative tasks and we're juggling school in some cases, especially for our fellows. We're juggling all these tasks. And one of the other tasks is one of the things we're juggling is our family. And we've got all these balls and we're juggling them. And the important thing to remember is that 
almost all of those balls are made out of rubber and they'll bounce. And if you end up late on a research project, that's okay. You could, that ball will bounce and you can pick it back up. But the one ball in there that's made of glass is your family. And I have seen too many friends, physicians and otherwise, who end up unhappy, divorced, their kids don't like them. Because if you, if you drop that family ball and it breaks and shatters, sure, you can try to super glue it back together, but it's never going to be the same. Whereas turning in a research paper a week late or not reviewing that journal article, you know what? They'll, they'll come back and you can turn that project in a week late. And that all bounces back. But once you drop that family ball, it's never going to be the same again. So focus on that one, even if you end up dropping everything else. That's really moving, Dr. Raja. I really appreciate you taking you know, your time today to you know, your busy schedule and talk with us and with all of our listeners and kind of sharing your thoughts and that very, very important piece of advice for all the listeners about juggling all those uh, different aspects of their life. So that just about wraps up our interview today. So Dr. Raja, thank you so much for your time. Dr. Saleh, thank you so much for your time as well. It's been a pleasure chatting with you guys. Do all of those who are listening, we appreciate your attention. We appreciate your time. And thank you so much for everything you do. Till next time, take care.